You didn't set out to be an activist, but when your government confronted you with more and more restrictions, your natural stubbornness took over. Far from letting people push you around, you instead became a voice for the powerless in your country. It might have been an accident, but it is an accident with powerful repercussions. You're listening to 2233, a podcast of Exchange Stories. And it was kind of funny. I didn't want to be a political activist. We have a group talking, discuss about politics at the American Center, and I am the only one. I'm, I was the youngest, and I was the only one that I don't like the bean curry because in the jail we said that they they give you bean curry. So I'm the one keep saying I don't want, I don't like it. I'm not going to do the politics at all. But in the end, after ten years, it was me who was on the political path, and not other people are not there anymore. Is it's a lot of changes in my life. This week, dancing for the generals, fighting for the underdogs, and becoming a voice for the oppressed. Join us on a journey from Yangon, Burma to Minneapolis, Minnesota to become an accidental human rights activist. It's 2233. We report what happens in the United States, warts and all. Exchanges shaped who I am. When you get to know these people, they're not quite like you. You read about them, they are people very much like ourselves. And oh, that's what we call cultural exchange. Ooh, yes. My name is Ain't Theory Du, but my friends call me Theory, like scientific theory. And I'm from Burma, Myanmar. I'm the second year in the Master of Human Rights program at the University of Minnesota, coming with a Fulbright program. I was a political activist before when I was 17 and and then I started to working with the international media and the human rights organization uh, over the past seven years, mostly since I was 20. And I've been working in the human rights and I've been traveling across the country documenting about the human rights abuses and the political news and that kind of thing. I spent most of my time at the American Center when I was teen. My, my late teenage were at the American Center, which is like a American school arranged by the American Embassy. So, so I knew about Fulbright Program since then and I applied for that and I got it and I am here. I was born in 1990, which is two years after the biggest nationwide protest in the country. A few months before I was born, there was an election, but then the military refused to give the power to the political party who won the landslide victory there. And But then since then, there was a military dictatorship. And so growing up in Burma in 90s, it's all about propaganda. Like you will see at the book or any newspaper we only have two newspapers, which is run by the state. And we have TV program, which is all controlled by the government. And we have a big, big poster by the road and all this thing. It would say, like, 
Demidor, which is the name for the military. Military is the father. Military is the mother. So people make jokes that, oh yeah, I don't, I want to be an orphan because <laughs> they don't like the military dictatorship. The textbooks and everything. We didn't really have an education opportunity because everything we have to memorize, we have to digest. And the military government made that thirty years education plan, which is designed to systematically destroy the educated population of the country. Because if students are very educated, they protest, so the government don't want another protest. So they what、well, they decided to reform the education system, which is more us to be a good follower rather. Than thinker or the leader, so this is how my generation looks like. It's so much embedded into our life. When the leaders of the country pass by, as a school kid, we have to wake up five a.m. in the morning and. Stand by the roadside just to wave at those leaders pass by. By myself, I used to dance for the military general since I was three years old, and it was funny. Like I've been, I've been dancing for them for until I, I was until I finished my high school. Until that one general specifically, until he stepped, he he was fired from the office. But like over ten years. I've been dancing for the general. The first time was I. I don't remember that much, but my parents said I was very interested in dancing since I was two. Like I was one traditional dance when there's a dance show on the TV. I was like dancing when I was five. I that was my first time. I had a dinner with the general as part of the UN anniversary. I got third prize in the dance competition. So I was. I was dancing there. My family was proud too because those are the generals, and I appear in those dances, and they know me, they hug me, and sometimes they kiss me, which is weird. Think about it now, but but they were pretty proud of it because as an ordinary citizen, because those was this is more like a specific class and some some kind of privilege meeting with the leaders, and so they feel like, and I also I also feel like oh it's. Really great, and a lot of my classmates wouldn't have this kind of chance. And for me, I was known by these people, and I was kind of proud. And I didn't know anything about this military things. I even went for the this kind of essay competition. There was some slogan, and we have to prove that military is great, protecting our country, or or everybody is living peacefully, and that kind of thing. I guess I wasn't really aware that until I finished my high school. It was just after I finished my high school. There was the another protest happened two thousand in two thousand seven. This is when I started seeing that they there were monks and the people and military started shooting them. And two years before I was born, even though I heard that there was a protest and a lot of people died, I never feel like I'm connected to it because I've never seen seen that. But this thing. 
peaked in 2007, even though it's not as big as the previous one, it is something that is happening in front of me. And my uncle got arrested as part of the protest, and so. This is when people started talking about the military. My family, they would never say that before. Like mainly my mom and dad. Even though my uncle who got arrested talks about politics with me since I was little, but my mom and other people, it it's always been a taboo talking about the politics in the family. But this is the time everybody in the family started talking about the bad things of the military, and I started aware of that. And then a year later, it was a cyclone. Nagis hit the country, and a lot of people died. This is where the turning point of the country, because international assistance came in, and the international NGO came in, and this is when the civil society started in Burma. <laughs> So that time, I just wanted to volunteer. I saw in 2007, I saw people got killed by the military, and in 2008, I saw people die. And military didn't take responsibility, and also they keep talking about the the numbers. They reduce the number of the people who are being killed by the natural disaster. And then when we started doing this activity, providing eggs and something, the government keep an eye on us. I would say my activism was accidental because I didn't mean to be a political activist. I just wanted to be a social worker. I just wanted to work for the cyclonagis thing. But then military and the the government that time keep an eye on anybody who's NGO or anything. So I am begin I begin one of them. That they watch because we went to the American Center and we actively involved in this kind of student clubs and everything there. So it was the military government, I would say, who turned me into the political activist. I wasn't really mean to. I was just want to be a social worker. Those days, we couldn't even openly study the. Political science, or even the social science, we cannot really take the book or the handouts out of our classroom at the American Center. So, so what happened was, I I feel like I just want to study. Why don't you just let me study? There was a point that me and the other some other friends started the school, and then the military intelligence, the special branch, they started following us, and they keep pressuring. Our landlord to push it out, push us out of that apartment, so that we cannot providing this kind of education. We we have we have a training center sort of、uh, giving the social science training to the people. It's a really small thing, but then they keep pushing us, and we have to move from one place to another. And I feel like this is bullying, and they are like. It, that's the turning point. I would say I couldn't turn back because even if I go back, things will be things will be worse because I will be under watch. No matter what I do, I will never be the same as before. They will see me as a as a threat. And also another thing is my personal thing. Like I have this kind of stubborn that I I like to do when people told me that I can't. You know, I just like why not. So I just want to 
go for it. If they didn't, if they would, I think if they have left me go that time, I wouldn't be a political activist these days. I would just go back to normal. But now, like because they push me too hard, and I'm just like, okay, you do it. Okay, I'm gonna go for it. Just to, <laughs> just to. I don't want to listen to it. I would just like go for it. I feel I'm like very much on the ground, and dreaming of the study abroad, going abroad is like it's like the sky. So I'm on the ground, and I'm just like looking at the sky. That's it. Because my understanding of studying abroad, going abroad, is that studying abroad is only for the rich people or, or only for the children of the leaders, not for me because I have never been part of it, and so. Even dream. What do you want to be when you grow old? We only have three choices: like either medical doctors or engineer or teacher. So when I was fifteen, when people asked me what did I want to be, I said I wanted to be a diplomat, and and I said I wanted to be the secretary general of the United Nations. And people laughed. The my teachers and students, and they just make fun of me because this is something. We shouldn't dream of because that would never be true. It wasn't until I finished my high school I feel I wanted to study abroad. I just feel like I don't want to be here, but I don't know how to escape. But then after I finished my high school, before I went to the American Center, I got a, I have a private tutor, the English teacher, and he asked me what I wanted to be, and I said I wanted to be a diplomat. And I thought I was expecting some kind of left from him because this is how I grew up. Even my family, my parents, they would laugh at me. Ha <laughs> ha, yeah, funny, cute. So, so he was just like, it's amazing. He said like, that's great. He find me as a unique person because nobody at my age would say that kind of thing in those in those days. That was in two thousand seven before the country opened it. We couldn't really dream about a lot of the things. And this is when he told my mom that this your daughter deserves more than this. She shouldn't be here because this this education's gonna destroy her, and this society's gonna destroy her way of thinking. So don't send her to the the Myanmar University because she will be ruined and she will be one of them. I like the program because the my program is the interdisciplinary disciplinary, so I can never pronounce that and. So, like, I think that in the policy war, we need more creativities and innovation. So, in terms of the this school, because the they offer me this kind of social sciences knowledge of the human rights, I I'm hoping to bring those knowledge together 
like policy sector, I feel like policy thing. What we learn is more about the success story and trying to solve the issues. But at the same time, social science is more like hold on, hey, things are not that simple. Here's a loophole, and here's a limitation of the law. Here's a limitation of this concept and the policy and something. So by combining those things, I find it really valuable for me because I am just like going. Back and forth, and trying to balance this kind of knowledge and the experience. So I hope when I go home, and if I talks about the human rights policy, human rights movement, human rights advocacy, I wouldn't just say about the conventional way of the advocacy or the policy. I would like to put a lot of the multi-dimensional way of thinking in approaching the human rights situation of the of my country. Here, a lot of international students. They have Humphrey Fellows, and also the migrants community here, and also the American community here. They are very supported, at least to my program. I really, I'm really grateful to be part of it. I really feel like family. They are always there behind me and supporting me for. A lot of the a lot of the things. So this kind of network is important, but that network is not just like networking event. It is personal basis and personal trust. And I am hoping to bring it throughout my career life out of the school. We have three, three best friends. One of them is Somali, and the other is Puerto Rican. So the Puerto Rican one loves to cook, and he is a great chef. The other best friend, Fatima from Somali, she um she has a car, so she drive for us when we do go for the grocery. And Ivan from Puerto Rico, and he cook for us, and I pay for the grocery. So this is how I solve. And we are always together, study together, and a lot of people. At Humphrey School, would be jealous of us because we are always together. Really, we're the coolest group <laughs> in at the at the Humphrey School. I cannot drive, but one day last year during the blizzard, there was um, my friend's car got stuck. So me and the other, we are like three, three people a group, right? So one of them car got stuck, and we trying to push the car out of the snow. But then I'm the smallest one, so they think that you shouldn't push it because you won't put any effort. Why don't you get on the car and trying to you move the steering? So I'm just like, okay, I'm gonna do that, even though I cannot drive. <laughs> that was pretty dangerous, and they think that it wouldn't move anyway. So. I was like doing it, and I almost ran over my friend. So that was the crazy thing. I'm just, like, I'm not going to drive again. And my mom told me, "Don't kill anybody in the foreign land. <laughs> That's not cool." I've never seen the fall or the snow in my life before. This is my first time. And it's really amazing. Like the this color, the 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 leaf, 
the yellow and the red, and it's just it's just so beautiful. And plus, I have this. I have yellow shoes, and I bought yellow shoes and red shoes so that I can take the photos with the with the leaf. I like it. I I don't really feel, um, I don't I don't really miss home. I just feel like he is home too. To be honest, I'm having some kind of threat. Like you might have heard, there's Rohingya's crisis happening in the country, and there's the whole country pretty much they are denying or defending the government or the military that this is not happening as it is, or this international media are lying, international human rights organization are lying, and the Rohingyas are lying about their suffering. So there is like a Push back from the whole country for、uh, the general human rights work. So I'm one of the very few people who was vocal on this issue. Since I came here, I happened to talks in the U.S. policy sectors and also university, and talking about my knowledge and on the Rohingyas issues. A lot of people are not happy with what I've been saying. So I don't know what. It will look like the fact that my degree will be like Master of Human Rights. It's is the the degree itself is a threat to the to my society and in terms of the work, I I don't I don't know how it will be like that. But it's really challenging because I didn't know these things would happen. Even though I have seen the Rohingyas crisis, but that the crisis has been this to reach into this level to reach in that. International level, why I'm here, I didn't know that. So I happened to chose human rights, and this crisis happened, and I happened to speak out against this injustice. So it's just like um, it's challenging for me. I don't know how should I bring it not to be um against the Burmese community because in the end. This is my country. This is my people, and I. This is the place where I need to work. So, so I'm like thinking. It's like I've been thinking every day, and and human rights. It's not like a subject or the career for me. It's just like a personal to me. And so I need to tell my friends before I. I I've been thinking, strategizing how to talk, how to go through. This kind of challenges that I want to, I want my friends, my family, and my relative to know that what does it mean for me? Why I chose to be human rights? I've been thinking a lot how to get away with that and how to tell them the passion that that I have because there are a lot of like class and all this thing. Because in the country, as I said, the income gap is really high in this kind of third world country. People like me working in human rights organization or the international media, we got a lot more than other people, than my friends. So, I think my friends and my relative, when they see is that how much money I could spend when I go out with them, how much money I could earn, and the scholarship, the talks, award, all this kind of thing that they see, and they might, they might see that I want to get those status. I want to be rich, and that's why they do that. So they, so I think I this is my failure. 
I failed to show them my passion and why did I chose to be because I can. It's a really thin line. I can always step into it, or I don't know. You can be killed or something. Never know. But I never talk to them about this because I want to let them only the success story, and I only want them to, ins- I I only want to inspire them and good story. So I think because of that, I'm having a, I'm getting a pushback from my friends and family and even my best friend. On the other day, they call me. My best friend husband tell me that of course she's talking for Rohingyas because she got she wants dollar and it's crazy, but it's happening. So. Emotionally, it's really difficult position. Not only about career wise, also like emotionally. One, my best friends cannot see me as who I am, and cannot see my passion. It's challenging because when they see me as a money making person or the career seeking person or the award seeking scholarship seeking person, it's hurt me a lot. This is not who I am. This is not what I have been doing. These things are getting as part of. What I've been doing, and I'm not heroic doing this kind of thing. It's just like I'm doing it. Another reason is just not a, not only about the passion. It's also about the interest. As far as those um, injustice and the human rights violation are in place, I could be one of the victims one day, and my family, my friends, they could be one of they could be one of the victims. So that's the reason I chose the human rights. It's not because I believe in them. I have. Higher moral, moral, or other thing, or money, or scholarship, or anything. It's more about like it's interest, like because if you let it go, we one after another. In the end, it will be my day. I will be the victims. I will be my rights will be violated. This is why I'm doing. But I really want to tell them, but I just couldn't tell them so far. Yeah. Before going really far, I want to talk to my close friends. I just want to have a conversation. Why they are having this kind of racism view? Why? Why do you? Why do they hate Rohingyas? And I just want to talk to them. And then I'm hoping to, um, maybe I will go for the research and something. But my main goal is to write something like in Burmese, more in a narrative way, storytelling sort of. I want people to tell the story of. People here, so I'm bringing this personal story, and I want to make a conversation with my friends before I talk about the human rights policy or anything. I think our society, the society at home, needs to be fixed. But without without the society, yeah, we can pressure the government and something. But it's a society that needs to understand about what human rights and all this thing.
I I don't want to be treated bad by the state because you can never I can never trust the government and I can never trust the military. This is a threat. So as far as there is a human rights violation and things are, if we let it happen, let's say today Rohingya, yeah, we have been silenced because this is not about us. And then next day there will be Gachin, another group. There will be Shen. There will be another group, another group. Injustice. If we, it's not about one group. We are silent. It we are silent. We are silent, and we silence ourselves. And we didn't speak up against the injustice. So we are like growing the injustice, and we let it, we let it grow. And I cannot let it happen because in the end, I will be the one. I can be one of them as far as those things exist. And there will be nobody who will be speaking for me because we let it happen, and we we begin like like normalizing. This kind of injustice part of our life, which I cannot really accept it. This is not really okay. So many of my friends here, like they told me, which I really appreciated because they love me and they just like they don't want me to burn out. And they told me, theory, can you please stop thinking or talking about human rights a day? Take a break. Like just continue your drawing and don't do anything. Don't think about it. Just break yourself. And I find that I feel like I'm really uncomfortable when people tell me this, because I understand they love me and they don't want me to burn out. But at the same time, it's a it's a life of me, and it's my interest. Just like a mom cooking in the kitchens every day, you cannot really. It's just like daily work, daily life, and I'm doing it. And I'm at least I'm privileged. When I say that, take a break. I can take a break because. I'm privileged, but why don't you go and talk to the? If we go and talk to the refugees in the camp, like, can you take a break? Take a break being a refugee a day, which is not possible. So it's because I'm not doing for the passion, or I'm not doing for the career. I'm doing for my own interest. If I don't do it, who would, who would do it? Who would protect me? So I'm just doing this thing. I'm just protecting myself. So. So these kind of award and scholarship, when I got it, I got it, and I'm really appreciated. But at the same time, I feel like I don't need it because do you give award to a mom who cook every day the meal for their children? They don't do that. So giving award to the human rights or giving award or scholarship to me, it's I should it should be based on my skill. It shouldn't be based on what I have done great because I haven't done anything great yet. It just I'm just doing my daily life work. So. A lot of the time, I'm I'm losing hope, and I even cry. I'm just like many times, it's crazy. And people will say that, why are you just taking this thing? And and I'm just like, I take a lot of things personal, and it's exhausting. I'm not very optimistic, but at the same time, I will. I have to work. I'm cannot just set aside just because. I don't have an optimistic view about the future, but there are some hope left in the country. There are a few people who are in, continue working on it. They still on their own value. They don't betray their own value. A lot of young people in Burma. When I mean a lot, which means like twenty or so people 
sacrifice a lot to given the country situation. But speaking with those people, knowing that these people are there, they give me hope. And I feel like, yes,、uh, we need time, but we still have a few people left. It's not like zero. And it's, and also, I happen to connect with the Bemis American. They also give me hope. We are like, we see, we, we tell each other that we're just like mirror of hope. We see hope in each other. So I was telling them that they were my hope, but they were telling that I was their hope. So it's really fascinating that there were times that I find really, I find the dark around me in my world, and I feel like my country, I have no hope on my country. And I feel like, no, this is the end. It just, it's different from the old days political activism because there were friends who would stand with you. Because they believe in the same value. But these days, when we talk about human rights of Rohingya, it's not like that. My friend, there were no friends who would back me up. They were like defend for the government, which is really, I, I still don't understand that. They define injustice in a really complicated way. So, so those, those days, at some point, I was really, I find it really dark around my world. And I feel like, I have no hope at all. But then I happened to talk at, the, at Cornell. That video file was online, and the Burmese American and other Burmese students study abroad, they started contacting me and they said, they sent me thank you. And it was just like, that was a moment, like, because I was like almost giving up on everything, and they were just like saying, thank you. It was not a bit what a lot of the thing, just say thank you for standing up. And we've been hoping, like, they need somebody to start. They were just like waiting, they were all scared. We all were scared. And then I started speaking, and so they contacted. So, this is a lesson learned for me. Every time when you feel dark or hopeless, you don't, you don't give up, you make a voice. Then the echoes, they're gonna come back to you. And those are the hope. And I see the hope in them, and they see the hope in me. Twenty-two-thirty-three is produced by the Collaboratory, an initiative within the U.S. State Department's Bureau of Educational and Cultural Affairs, better known as ECA. My name is Christopher Worst. I'm the director of the Collaboratory. Twenty-two-thirty-three is named for Title Twenty-two, Chapter Thirty-three of the U.S. Code, the statute that created ECA. And our stories come from participants of U.S. government-funded international exchange programs. In this episode, Ain't Theory Two, or Theory, 
shared her story and moments from her current Fulbright scholarship, working towards a Master's of Human Rights at the University of Minnesota. For more about the Fulbright and other ECA exchange programs, you can check out eca.state.gov. We also encourage you to subscribe to 2233. You can do so wherever you find your podcasts. And we'd love to hear from you. Write to us at ecacollaboratory@state.gov. That's E-C-A-C-O-L-L-A-B-O-R-A-T-O-R-Y at state.gov. Special thanks this week to Terry for her story and her commitment to human rights in Burma. I did the interview and edited this episode. Featured music was Galma's Olden by Mike Del Ferro, Rose Baba by Jan Tyrion, Kathy's Waltz by the Dave Brubeck Quartet, and Busqueda Exploratoria 03-07-09 by Circus Marcus. Finally, Up 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 by Poddington Bear. Music at the top of each episode is Sebastian by How the Night Came, and the end credit music is Two Pianos by Tagir Lius. Until next time.